People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, including that the best parallel to the war in Ukraine is the Second World War. I'm going to propose it's the first. I actually don't know what the best parallel is, and obviously wars involving massive armies and arsenals generally represent historical discontinuities. But I've newly discovered a 2014 BBC docudrama called 37 Days about the run-up to the First World War, which, till recently, I only watched on DVD. Now I've seen it for a third time because you can stream all three parts on Daily Motion. It has, yes, aggravating banner ads, but only at the beginning of the episodes. Anyway, I found 37 Days supremely enlightening for understanding how diplomacy, finance, personalities, propaganda, and national political strife come to bear on the formal commitment of one army to slaughter another. 37 Days uses a script based almost entirely on diplomatic cables, meeting minutes, phone call transcripts, private letters, and 170 pages of primary documents from the summer of 1914. As you'll remember, things moved fast. From June 28, 1914, when an obscure Austrian archduke was shot in Sarajevo, to August 4, 1914, when the United Kingdom declared war on Germany. Yeah, that's right. A minor, mostly symbolic conflict involving a Serbian terrorist and an Austrian monarch turned very quickly into a war between two entirely different nations. And then, of course, most of the world. Now, as much of the world is warily watching Russia, a nuclear power, murder civilians in Ukraine, an ally and neighbor of the nuclearized NATO states, it's worth thinking about decision-making over wars. And inevitability. Grounded in period documents, 37 Days dramatizes how many accidents, personal eccentricities, misunderstandings, grand gestures, and raw cruelty go into the making of a world war. It's an entry point at an angle to what's happening now, but I found that 37 Days, made for the BBC by Mark Hayhurst and Justin Hardy, has been, for me anyway, the best cultural artifact for shedding light on what's at stake in Europe right now. My guest today is Debbie Millman, and she's here to talk about branding. I know, don't roll your eyes. 
branding seems like a faraway neoliberal fantasy from the heydays of Tom's Shoes and Netflix Obama co-branding and the long lost time when it seemed global brands like Nike or McDonald's might lift the world out of darkness and tribalism and spread cheer, prosperity, and even democracy to all. I'm not even going to say narrator. It didn't happen. The old Golden Arches theory that two countries with McDonald's in them would never go to war because the Golden Arches were so inspiring and the countries were so interdependent and beholden to international law, that theory has been put to rest with the war in Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia both have, well, had McDonald's in them. McDonald's recently pulled out of Russia. But what's great about today's guest, Debbie Millman, is that she's a brilliant designer who, though she has worked on brands, is now profoundly skeptical of them, especially when they're meant to signal political action and good vibes, but do nothing to help those who suffer. Brands for good? Millman says, maybe. But she's been at this a long time, and she has a lot to say about brands as diverse as the Nike Swoosh, the Crucifix, and yes, the Swastika. So joining me is Debbie Millman, designer, podcaster, and author of Why Design Matters. Debbie Millman, welcome to This is Critical. Thank you, Virginia. It's so nice to be here. So I worked very briefly in marketing and branding for a Silicon Valley company, but I still don't know what is a brand? (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people have that same question, so no problem at all. A brand is manufactured meaning because brands aren't really real in the sense of what real is. They are constructs created by people in order to create an understanding of what this thing that they're offering, whether it be a pair of sneakers or a beverage or a movement or a religion, means. And so we create symbols and we create various rituals to allow people to understand what something means. And as consensus grows around what that means, then we begin to believe it. I love manufactured meaning. I just, I wish I had had this 20 years ago. All right, now I know. A brand is manufactured meaning. Um, Take something um, like, say, the crucifix or the peace symbol and tell tell me how that works as a brand. It's a really elemental thing like the cross. Okay. So, so this is a really, really interesting one because many, many years ago, I interviewed the legendary designer Massimo Vignelli uh, for uh, one of my books. And we were talking about branding and he at the time had designed the existing at that moment in time, American Airlines logo, which had been around forever. He had designed the subway map, the New York City subway map. I mean, this is a person who is one of the most important designers of the 20th century. And we were talking about design. And I said, is there anything that you'd like to redesign that you haven't? Mm. And he said, I'd like to to redesign the Catholic church, but everything except the crucifix. The crucifix is okay. Everything else has to go. (laughs) Wow, right. So so that's what an amazing answer. And I mean, it sounds from his name, like he has some kind of Italian heritage. So the Vatican is probably uh, close in his primitive ideas of what design is. What What did he dislike about the iconography of the Catholic church? And what did he like about the cross? Well, we, we, I actually never really got that far okay. because I think there was a nascent understanding that the simplicity and the elegance of the crucifix was actually 
um, really perfect, didn't need to be changed. It was, I think, some of the attitudes around some of the more modern behaviors that are being uh, debated that he, as well as I, felt were were a little bit primitive and, and should just be accepted already. Yeah. And, and so, you know, getting back to the, the crucifix, it is something that is utterly simple, mm-hmm. super easy to draw, mm-hmm. easy to create all sorts of merchandise around. Mm-hmm. And people feel very proud being able to signify that affiliation in the same way that in the early 2000s, people were walking around with white earbuds and that signified that I knew that you knew that I knew that you knew that we were early adopters, therefore cooler. We felt smug about that and been good about ourselves. It's a very, very interesting chemical reaction in our brains that these amulets of various sorts create. Okay, I'm just barely wrapping my head around this kind of analysis, but you're so good at this on Design Matters, your podcast. You started podcasting a whopping 15 years ago. It's actually 17 now. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? 2005, February 4th, 2005, my first show in. And, okay, tell me about, you know, what attracted you to podcasting? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was... I was, I was not attracted to it. I didn't oh. think, I wasn't opining doing some sort of an audio experiment in my free time. That was not it at all. Yeah. I, I had been working in consumer branding at that point for, I guess about really seriously at that point, about 10 years. And prior to that had been trying to make it as a designer and, and sort of failing. And in my journey in into becoming a brand consultant, I found my first success. And mm-hmm. I was already at that point, well into my thirties, like almost nearing 40. And the feeling was so intoxicating that that's all I wanted to do. It's like, oh, I'm finally successful at something. Okay. I'm yeah. going to abandon everything else, including my marriage. And I'm just going to do this like all the time. Yeah. And, and the marriage part was really a joke, but it didn't survive that, that oh, particular come on. period I, yeah. in my life. Uh, sure. I've been there. Okay. Go and, on. <laughs> and by that 10th year doing this and, and I've given up all of my less successful artistic ventures, I started to feel like I was losing my creative soul. And hmm. I happened to get a cold call from a fledgling internet radio network called Voice America, which is different from Voice of America. And I was offered an opportunity to host a radio show. And I thought they were offering me a job, but they weren't. They were offering me an opportunity to pay them to produce a radio show that I would host. So it was like super vanity project. But that's really kind of how desperate I was to do something creative again. And I also felt like this would be an opportune thing to be able to do during office hours because I could potentially interview clients and talk about branding and design and felt like it there was enough of an overlap that I could justify it to myself, but enough of a creative openness to it that I could maybe feel like I was making something again. And that's really how it started. I paid them. I paid Voice America for four years, did 100 episodes on Voice America, and then moved to Design Observer for 10 years. And then... Um, recently moved to uh, the TED Audio Collective. And I've been doing that with them for, I think, two years. I think all that timing makes sense. 
I, th- I feel that we need to issue some kind of warning to listeners that if you've ever been offered to pay for exposure, so to like pay someone else so you can, you know, take pictures of yourself as a model and maybe get seen or publish something on a blog um, and maybe get seen by someone else, this doesn't usually work out. Debbie is <laughs> one of the rare, exa- rare counterexamples. This is one of the times you made it work. And that is, we're also, lucky for that. Well, I do need to say that those first hundred episodes are really hard to listen to. They're so bad, really bad. I was doing, you know, back in 2005, I was doing the show initially with two landlines through a modem. (laughs) Oh, like, (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I started in 2015 and I still, yeah, I can't even, it's not that I can't even listen. I can't even think about some of the things I said. I know. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And so this brings us to to one of the themes of your show, which is failure. Um, you tend to be really interested in your guests' failures. And what, what do you find so fascinating about failure? Well, I don't know that I would call them failures so okay. much as obstacles or challenges, because they're not really failures in that they're efforts that they experienced in a variety of response with a variety of responses, because sometimes what seemed like a failure ended up being a success just later. You know, oftentimes rejection is external. You're not saying this isn't working. Somebody else is saying it. And that's sort of why it hurts so much. Somebody's like, no, thanks. Yeah. And, and then you have to decide, is it everyone saying no, or is it just this person and this person saying no? And how much do you want to continue to to persevere? But mostly I'm interested in how people overcome obstacles, how they overcome challenges or trauma or rejection. And I guess failure is included in that, but I would say that most of the people that I speak to don't allow rejection or challenges to stop them so much. And that's the part that I'm interested in. For so long in my life, I was so afraid to pursue what I wanted to do because of my own insecurities that I'm still endlessly fascinated by how people overcome their own insecurities to find a specific kind of belief in themselves, despite their insecurities, to still feel like their voice matters and is worth sharing. And that to me is like the holy grail. How do do people do that? And I'm I'm still really endlessly fascinated in figuring that out. I think we'd all like to know a bit more about overcoming rejection, especially when social or career rejection can feel so personal. After the break, Debbie Millman explains why we shouldn't aim to be a personal brand at work or anywhere else. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. 
Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Debbie Millman, host of the long running podcast, Design Matters. So we started by talking about brands, which are of interest to you. Another way that another expression, you know, sometimes a, a word comes into use like brand and you think, what, what did this used to be? You know, in 1950, there must have been something similar. And w- one of the things, having done a project on sales manuals of the 30s and 40s, good name was an expression used a lot, uh, right? And you have yes. your good name. And it's something that can't be taken away from you, even with a failure. But it also is something that you can squander, but with dishonesty or with other lapses from integrity. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship of failure and brand? Well, brand is the result. Brand is a result. As I said, brands don't really exist in the the sense of, of being real. You know, we exist, we're human, we breathe, we live, we die. Brands are are not self-directed and they are only directed by people. Yes. So so that's what I mean when I say that they're not real in the sense of real. Interesting. In terms of a brand, a brand is created by a process of sound strategic positioning that include a whole lot of things, cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, economics, business strategy, creativity, et cetera. It's launched into the world with marketing and promotion and slotting on shelves and advertising and PR and all of that. And whether or not that is successful. So there's two parts of it that are especially the product that people are going to appreciate and like. So there, there is a trial period in when you launch a brand to sort of see whether this is going to, this is going to stick. And part of that success has to do with the actual product itself and what it delivers on the promise of the advertising and and then also how how well it's communicated what this thing is doing what the benefit is for anybody that is going to buy into it literally and figuratively so to speak mm-hmm. so so that journey results in a brand because a brand has this now reputation and it has this name that people will hopefully recognize and associate and that's a really critical word here associate with a certain number of attributes. Um, In terms of failing, there's any number of ways that it can fail. The most prominent being it just doesn't work, just doesn't deliver, just doesn't provide any benefit to a person. It's a product that doesn't taste any different or any better or have any real significant pull to culture in any way. So there's lots and lots and lots of reasons that brands fail. What, What I'm really interested in what you just said about the 50s sort of vernacular was the idea of a good name. Because what a lot of people ask me about now and a lot of people are seem to be seeking um, is becoming a personal brand. Hmm. And I have real umbrage with that. I take umbrage with that because I don't think people should aspire to be personal brands. First of all, I think it's an oxymoron. Brands aren't personal. You can have a relationship with a brand, but brands aren't personal. People are people. People are persons. When people say, don't take it personally, I'm like, but I'm a person. How else am I supposed to take it? <laughs> right. I don't have a lot of choices. You know, am I supposed to take it businessly? I mean, brandly? I don't know. I don't get it. But in any case, 
when people are aspiring, if, if, if brands aren't real in the truest sense of real, what people are then aspiring to be is manufactured meaning. Hmm. I think instead people can own brands and they can run brands and they can direct brands, but to be a brand, just sort of giving up all of this soulfulness and nuance and abstractness of what it means to be a person with different ideas and contradictory moods and, and, ways in which we operate that maybe don't always make sense to people. So what you just said about personal brands is actually making me think of what we were talking about a moment ago with rebranding the Catholic Church. I know you said that was mostly a joke, but in some ways, one of the most world historical redesigns was maybe the Protestant Reformation because you're right, that streamlined the Catholic Church. But when I think about Catholic iconography, and I, I didn't I didn't grow up Catholic, but when I think about Renaissance paintings, they're closer to a complex human there as opposed to the supreme abstraction of the kind of bare cross. Yes. I mean, I don't think it's too strong to say it's it's tragic to imagine a person aspiring to the level of abstraction in a Nike swoosh. Absolutely. And then, so then going back to what you said, which I'm so interested in and, and really want to think about a lot now over the next couple of months is, is what, what I recommend people do when they're talking about building per, their personal brand rather than doing that. I'm like, work on your reputation, mm. work on your character. And then what you just said, work on your good name. Yeah. That's what you want to be able to have is a good name in the community that you're operating in and living in. And that's what I think people should aspire to be. Otherwise, you're aspiring to be very one-dimensional with only one way of operating. And that's why I think people have such a hard time on Instagram. And, and you know, I said, they said to, on Kara Swisher's show, nobody comes away after 30 minutes on Instagram feeling really good about their own lives because we're seeing these one-dimensional projections. Mm-hmm. Yes. Manufactured projections in an opportunity to be a brand. And that's not really feeling good when it comes to being human. Yes. I mean, I it does seem from those sales manuals is that the good name, and now we indeed, I want to get to the sort of slightly sinister side of, of even branding, but the reason that good name is such a part of The Power of Positive Thinking or Dale Carnegie's book about winning friends and influencing people is that the hypothesis in that era was that if you were untrustworthy, people wouldn't buy from you. Right. Well, that is the single biggest reason somebody won't buy is because they don't trust whatever it is, the person, the product, whatever. And so the cultivation of brands is also a way to keep people buying from you because either you're charismatic or they have just cathected a lot on the Nike Swish or the Apple brand. Um, But it all is, you know, there's some code words that I remember from the branding world about trust or about, you know, developing a relationship with a brand that are really just about cash registers ringing or am, am I missing something? No, you're not missing anything. And and this is another issue with what brands try to do now by capitalizing on movements of our time. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there aren't any really bad brands if brands aren't real in the sense of real. It's bad people (laughs) that are making the brands or directing the brands or managing the way that brand their brands are behaving. Mm -hmm. And, and so when people talk about the evil corporation, I'm like, do you think that the corporation is like a Marvel character that has its own DNA and, and, and 
and, and sense of consciousness that doesn't exist. It's the people within the corporation. You know, and I can talk about the most evil symbol of all time, which is the swastika, and show how pre-World War II, the swastika was a Sanskrit symbol that meant good fortune, well-being, and good luck. Yes. And everybody from the Boy Scouts to Coca-Cola to um, poker chips to, I mean, there were hundreds, hundreds of uses of the swastika in branding at that point prior to World War II, where they were all trying to capitalize on the good luck and well-being and good fortune. And Coca-Cola had a bottle opener that was in the shape of a swastika. Wow. Right. It was a sort of yin-yang. And it's now, it's a mark beyond redemption. And that's because of the way it was appropriated. But again, these are constructs that humans make, whether they're good or bad, depends on how the human is using them and abusing them. And they don't have a power on their own. They are strictly constructs that humans have created to be able to to communicate with shorthand and to be able to recognize things more quickly and, again, define our beliefs and signify our affiliations. And they make us feel safer when we know what, what, what's in, around us. Um, the the Nike swoosh, which is revered symbol in our time, is also the um, Newport Cigarettes logo upside down and the Capital One logo on its side. Wow. So these are all constructs that we project meaning into. Seriously, take a second to Google those logos. They really are the same. When we return, we'll hear more about what brands get wrong and what individuals can do to make changes. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. to This is Critical. Today, design expert Debbie Millman is giving us a crash course on branding. Tell about a branding failure, like the Kendall Jenner Pepsi kind of misstep. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that they're insincere. It's, it's insincere. People see that. People understand when they're being fed marketing speak, and they reject that. They, they reject that. And some of it is the moment in time mm-hmm. and and really, really bad timing when we're we're grappling with something that is not easily solvable. And in that particular case, in that particular moment, it seemed opportunistic. 
And, and when things feel opportunistic, people bristle. And if we look back to a time when Coca-Cola did the, I want to teach the world to sing, you know, why was that successful at the time and not successful when Jenner did it? And that was because it was, I believe, depicting a scene of violence hmm. that could be somehow cured with a soft drink. That somehow this olive branch, soft drink is olive branch. That was not a good positioning statement. Whereas I want to teach the world to sing was really about coming together peacefully. Yeah. And would it work as well in today's world? Probably not. We're, I think, far more cynical now than we were then. Yeah. But I think it's really, does it cross the line from benevolence to opportunism? And, and clearly that did. And obviously, all these massive multinational global brands are so interesting to dissect. And I guess we all think we're experts on them, right? But- no, 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 no. I mean, things happen all the time. I mean, I'm really, really fascinated by what's happening now with the Don't Say Gay in Disney. All right. Now, let's talk about Don't Say Gay, which I can't believe is really the name of it. So that's, of course, the bill passed recently in Florida that prohibits discussing sexuality and gender identity in schools. Good luck. Uh, Disney, which is, of course, a major employer in Florida uh, with Disney World, has faced a lot of criticism for being slow to speak out against the bill and for not doing more work to prevent it from passing. I think this bill makes most of us choke, and it's even worse than don't ask, don't tell. I mean, it's don't even say a word. Don't acknowledge it. That's, you know, don't don't even acknowledge it, which is so, so hurtful and and so heinous. Yeah. I can't even, I just can't even. I mean, it makes, you know, and this is what, what's really interesting about today's younger consumer is that they are weighing the politics and the morals of the companies that they're willing to support. Yeah. Much more so than, than my generation. I'm 60, much more so, way more so than my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. Consumers, the younger consumers today are not as interested in a different form or a different flavor of a snack. They're interested in how is this brand going to make a difference in my life or in the world? And so they're really looking at things, not everyone, but a much larger contingent than ever before. And that's when we'll we'll see real sea change, because going back to what we were talking about earlier, corporations don't put products on the market for because they have a good feeling about it. You know, they're not like, let's hope this works. And if it doesn't, we're going to give it like 10 years to take off. Yeah. No, if it doesn't work within six months, it goes off the shelves. This is not something... Brands that are owned by corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder, period, the end. Any other ancillary good stuff they do in the process is frosting. That's great that they do it. They're not obligated to do it. And if they're doing it, likely it's because either someone in the corporation is championing it after a lot going through a lot of hoops and a lot of politics and because consumers, their younger base of consumers want it. And that's why it's happening. The more people want something, the more the corporation will deliver it. And if a company is protecting some of the shortcomings of the product or the dangers that it's causing, right, it shakes its way down to people who work for them. I mean, I think that's sometimes you can just tell there's something sketchy about a company. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I've worked on products that I'm now not proud of that I did, but at the time there were 
specific reasons why I felt that it was okay. You know, I worked on cigarettes back in the days in, I guess, the 90s. Mm. And, you know, I was a smoker. So I I didn't force anybody in my company to work on the cigarettes that didn't want to. And some people opted out. And a lot of the designers were like, oh my God, we get to redesign a classic icon. And they were really excited about it. But I wouldn't take that job now, not in a million years, no matter how much they paid. Yeah. My wife recently asked me, like, would you go back and work in a corporation again? And I was like, I, I, you couldn't pay me millions of dollars to go back and do that kind of work again. I've done enough of it and I'm good with where I ended it. Um, let's talk about brands that are that are good brands, the brands that bring about social change. I, I, you know, what I love about the way you talk about these things is you're intensely critical about what brands can promise, but you haven't lost faith. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think that, I think that a lot of what's happened in the last 10 years is some of the most exciting branding that we've seen in our lifetime. And if we go back to the early part of our conversation, when we're talking about humans creating these symbols to signify their beliefs in the higher power. And so that I call that bottom-up branding, where people are making brands for brands for the sheer virtue of sharing an idea. Mm -hmm. And that's the way this all really began because we're humans and humans were making things for humans and because brands aren't self-directed. So we started that way. And then about 250 years or so ago, the corporation appropriated these behaviors in an effort to grow the recognition and the reach of products that they were making due to our ability to transport them via trains and our ability to travel brands could travel along as well and then become more globally based. Mm -hmm. And that's happened over the last 250 years. So the corporation has sort of appropriated this behavior that we originally started using as a way to signify beliefs to sell products. And it's only in the last 10 years that we've wrestled that back and are beginning to use the very same tenets of branding to be able to demand change in the way we behave as humans. And we saw that with Occupy Wall Street. We've seen that with um, Me Too. We've seen that with what I'm most excited about, Black Lives Matter, where we're beginning to see real change being made and real convictions being made for people that don't think that Black Lives Matter um, to be able to have a more equitable world. Yeah. And those are more than brands, for sure. They're movements, but they're using the tenets of branding the corporations do in, in very much the same way. They also come up from the bottom, right? Like so, Yeah, they're bottom-up brands again. Yeah. Corporate brands are top-down, where the corporation is pushing those products down into culture, whereas the original way that we created our religious symbols, we were pushing them up. Yes. And now we're doing that again. We're creating movements and pushing them into the world and finding like-minded people that believe these same tenets of living and are doing their best to push those out to and amplify those beliefs to people that are creating a groundswell of change. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I worked briefly on the Women's March, and I did learn then that Black Lives Matter organizers who came to organize the Women's March didn't quite know what it was like to work with branding professionals because they were more used to getting porta potties and permits and blockades to block the streets, choosing the route. And they had done this stuff a million times, and all of a sudden they had people interested in kind of slapping a brand on the Women's March. And they at first resisted this as kind of irrelevant. And I I don't want to speak for any of them, but as I understand it, some of them 
resisted this move, but then got big checks for the Women's March from companies looking to brand it. And they were like, okay, I get what this is. You know, now I see why people work with brands. I mean, I don't know. I guess I like to think that Black Lives Matter and Me Too, the original Women's March, Occupy Wall Street, these have no consciousness in my fantasy. They have no consciousness about how they're playing on Instagram. Now, is this just a fiction? I tell myself these are grassroots movements and they're not trying to sell me anything or look a certain way, or am I missing something? It's a slippery slope, Virginia. It's a slippery slope. I mean, look at Livestrong. It's a slippery slope. Hmm. Um, you know, did Lance Armstrong want to do good in the world with Livestrong? Yeah, he did. Was, was he lying while he was doing it? Yeah, he was. I think that part of the challenge with movements is that you do need a strong leader. Part of the reason Occupy didn't do, didn't have the, the staying power of something like Black Lives Matter um, is that there was no designated leader. There are people that you can associate, Alicia Garza with Black Lives Matter, Tarana Burke with Me Too, people that are really trying to make profound change in the world that don't seem to be putting profit first. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that I really believe anything on Instagram. (laughs) I think it's more of an entertainment. You know, it's like, I want to believe that Iron Man exists when I go to see a Marvel movie or that, you know, Thanos is dead, but, you know, anything could happen and will happen in those movies. And I feel like the same thing about Instagram. It's a fun place to go for a little bit of entertainment. But again, after 30 minutes is like, oh, my life sucks and compared to everybody else in the world. And then I feel bad. I um, am so grateful to get to talk to you and hear that about Instagram. Read Instagram as fiction. I've been saying that for a long time. If it makes you feel bad, then it's time to get off it. Um, But I can't say that I like the suggestion that Thanos being dead is a fiction because then you're suggesting he might be still alive. Debbie, why are you doing this? I don't know. What if, you know, what if we can figure out, you know, Dr. Strange does something with time again and then we have Thanos' brother coming in and who knows what's going to happen next. We are going to have you back on the show after the next Avengers comes out. Debbie, okay. thank you, you got so it. much for being here. <laughs> My pleasure, Virginia. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to learn about our show, as do you cult listeners talking about it on Twitter. Shout out to you. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter, at page 88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace produced this episode. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. 
Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.